The savings rock when you find a new way to roll. Like sharing the ride to work. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, commuter connections can match you with others who live and work near you. It's easy and free. Plus, you can get cash and other rewards for carpooling, up to $600 a year. Get rolling on a new way to work with Rideshare. Register today at commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. That's commuterconnections.org. Some restrictions apply. We've all faced this dilemma at the end of a long day. Make a healthy homemade dinner or take the quick and easy route. Gobble gives you the best of both worlds. And I say this as a person who is pretty much going to fall into that quick and easy route most of the time, whether that is when I'm good, that means nuking a sweet potato for dinner. When I'm bad, that means delicious delivery. Gobble gives me no excuse to make dinner. I should say, rather, it gives my husband no excuse to make dinner because he's the one who actually does the cooking. And this summer, he's particularly enjoying the fact that Gobble is offering grill kits. Uh, You get to make the dinner in your kitchen if you want to, but also if you want to grill, you may do that. And, you know, for some reason, dudes think grilling is not the same as cooking, I guess. It's a little more manly. In any case, you can grill. And it will still take just about 15 minutes. All of their meals are just about 15 minutes. And all of their meals are usually one pan. I guess with a grill, not technically a pan even. The great thing about Gobble is that their army of sous chefs do all the time and consuming work for you. They pick out the ingredients, they peel, they chop, they marinate, they make the sauces. All you have to do is pick out your meal and then kind of put it together. And at the end of the day, you'll have a home-cooked meal ready again in just about 15 minutes. That is why Parents Magazine voted Gobble the number one meal kit. I know you're going to like Gobble if you try it, and I want you to try it. So there's an incredible limited-time deal to get you started. Six meals for $36 plus free shipping. That's dinner for two for three nights for just $36. I don't know about you, but my last delivery bill was higher than that. Only available if you go to my special URL, gobble.com slash friends. That's gobble.com slash friends. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, where for the month of June, we are talking conspiracy theories. I am really excited about this week's episode. I'm going to be talking to Van Newkirk. He is a writer for The Atlantic covering race and environmental issues. And if you were wondering what that has to do with conspiracy theories, well, I think you'll be you'll find this episode very educational. Uh, this episode will explore the intersection of uh, African-American history and conspiracy theories. And we will be right back. Van, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. So I want to talk a little bit about that that sketch. The board is yours, Shanice. Let's go with they be, they out there saying for 200. Okay, the answer, they out here saying the new iPhone wants your thumbprint for your protection. <laughs> oh, okay then, duh. Well, what is, I, I don't think so. That's how they get you. Yes! <laughs> yes! <laughs> I don't trust that. Me either. No, I read that and go straight to the government. Mm. It's not bad, though. <laughs> uh, the board is yours. Let's go to they out here saying for eight. Okay, the answer there. They out here saying that every vote counts. Oh, Doug again. 
What is, come on, they already decided who wins even before it happens. Yes! 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 And the Illuminati figured that out months ago. That's another one for Dan. Okay, we're, uh, we're doing it. I personally didn't like it when I first saw it. Um, but it stuck with me for a long time because it seems to get at something that feels true, right? Which is that there is something in, that people who've been marginalized by either wealth or race have something in common. Like for me, especially, you know, that aired, I think it was the Saturday after the election. And part of me felt like, oh, this is just making white people feel better like finding an area of common ground. But I've yeah. I've kept thinking about the sketch, which makes me think maybe it was getting at something that's true. I think it did get at uh, something really important. Um, you know, there was a bit of fuzziness on uh, whether it was trying to, I think, uh, rehabilitate certain voters. But, you know, the, the conspiratorial uh, thinking, the, the idea that... Uh, the you know the government is out to get us that uh, the basic basic alignment of people with or against the system some of those things Tom Hanks's character shares with the other black folks you know they are saying um, and that I think is something interesting where what the election told us though is people who have these uh, skeptical relationships with the government, with power, uh, they respond in different ways that are racialized when they uh, come out to vote with or against that skepticism. Right. Then let's, obviously, this is what I really want to drill down on. Um, I think there's sort of this overall working hypothesis, which is that marginalized people kind of seek out conspiracy theories because it helps explain the world and also because they've been genuinely marginalized, right? Like they, there are some things that have happened in history that have been the work of shadowy networks (laughs) um, to do harm to, to people who are less, who are not part of that network. And it's actually like black Americans have actually been that group for a long time. Um, a lot of non-white Americans. Um, I have pointed to the the giving of, uh, you know, um, disease-ridden blankets to to Native people as like the found one of our founding conspiracy, like not conspiracy theories, but a conspiracy, right? Yeah. Um, so, what are the differences between like when you're a marginalized group and you've actually been subject to these conspiracies? Like what, how does that make your reaction to dominant culture different? Like how does that feed into the sort of conspiratorial thinking? Well, I'll start with the story. Let's say hypothetically, you know, a group of really rich people got together and decided they were going to overthrow a presidency. They were going to create a government that, uh, stole on purpose from people who, I don't know, wear green hats. (laughs) And uh, they're going to take the green hat people's money for them. They're going to subjugate the green hat folks. They're going to create a system that for at least 100 years, on purpose, again, from the outset, is going to uh, make it so those people with green hats can never take the green hats off, have to pass the green hats on to their kids, cannot 
marry people who wear other hats. And uh, they are going to be the targets of this transfer of this theft for at least three generations. And that's something that's going to be outlined by these rich folks. Uh, At the start of that century, it's going to be on paper. It's going to be official. Now, that's a conspiracy, right? Mm -hmm. That is the definition of a conspiracy. It is a Mm -hmm. group of powerful, connected people who got together to do a very nefarious thing that took lots of different moving pieces. Uh, it, it, it is going to last for a very long time, and it's going to have targeted outcomes that explain lots of different things uh, looking backwards. That actually happened, right? Mm-hmm. That is how Jim Crow was founded. Across every Southern state, a cabal of rich white folks got together, wrote Jim Crow constitutions, said that Black folks would be the target of those constitutions. They fought to keep intermarriage out. They made it so at the very least for three generations after themselves, they would ensure that a strict racial caste would be uh, enacted in all those states. And they did it with full knowledge that it would uh, create uh, big wealth gaps and would target those same black folks to be the marks in future generations. That happened. That is a conspiracy. And once you are the subject of a conspiracy, it makes it a lot easier to believe every single subsequent conspiracy. And I think it erodes your faith uh, in government. It gives you a baseline skepticism that we've seen really play out in all of our elections. People wonder why black turnout, for example, has always been historically low, even after the Voting Rights Act. And I think a good portion of it is they were the marks of a major <laughs> electoral conspiracy. Yeah. And lots of them were, you know, uh, my grandmother was alive uh, when she was allowed to vote for the first time. She was a target of that conspiracy. So how do you tell those folks, oh, you know, actually this time we mean you well? I guess it's interesting to me how, like, I feel like what this story, what this story says to me is that, you know, you're not paranoid if they're really after you, right? Like, they really are after you. And so, of course, like, medical experiments conducted on Black people throughout American history, right? Like, right. the story of someone waking up in a hotel room with their kidney gone doesn't seem that wild when you know that, like, your ancestors, not just ancestors, right? It, like, this was happening up until fairly recently, um, like one generation back or so, like there are still uninformed experimental subjects, right? Yeah. Uh, so, I so I get the why that marginalized group would be sympathetic to other conspiracy theories. I'm curious about the bleed between theory and history, right? Right. Like, is that just being super aware? <laughs> Like maybe like we it's it's not my place definitely to criticize the conspiracy theorizing because that's just people looking at structural inequality and finding it and maybe just getting it wrong about the details. So I will offer one bit of pushback mm-hmm. and it's uh, something I wrote today actually oh. about uh, Juneteenth. Um a passage in that piece talks about how lots of things that we were 
people were called all types of names about. They were gaslit. People called mm-hmm. them crazy. They said they were conspiracy theorists. These were the type of things you would hear from the the, the guy in the, the far corner of the barbershop, right? You know, oh, you know, the government's out to get us. The police are taking our money. Well, wait a minute. The Justice Department just discovered in Ferguson that actually the police departments are arresting Black folks to steal their money. So actually, I, I think aside from some of the really far out there things, uh, some of the big conspiracy the jury is still out on. Now, obviously, like, I don't think the government created AIDS or <laughs> HIV, um, which is a, a, a yeah, common Yeah, right. It's a very um, common theory. I don't think the government created HIV. Uh, we have pretty good uh, epidemiology showing us exactly how HIV came to be and how it was spread. Uh, and other things like believing, I don't know, the other common one is believing that... Uh, Conservative Republican uh, presidents from Nixon to Reagan created created uh, the actual drugs that led to the uh, drug epidemics. Mm-hmm. Those are things uh, that it, I know, so are not true, but again, they have some type of basis in reality. If you're reading the news and you see Iran-Contra come up on the news, is it really that much of a leap for you to say, oh, actually— Reagan created crack. <laughs> I, I don't. I mean, I think that I don't think you were pushing. If I say I, I agree with all of that. I think that what's interesting to me is what can be called conspiracy theorizing. You can use that term. But what I see when I see like black Americans talking about these things, I see a, an analysis of structural inequality. Right. Right. Like that's how they're viewing the world, which is a pretty which is an accurate way of viewing it. Um, like, again, like some of the details might not match up exactly, um, but who knows for sure, you know? I, I view it like farmer's almanac. <laughs> um, this is a very weird way to get into it. But, you know, farmer's yeah. almanacs, the, the old wisdom on how to predict the weather, um, the, the, the stuff about when and how and where to plant crops, that stuff is roughly accurate, right? Like mm-hmm. the farmer's almanac is generally... Uh, not 100% accurate on the actual weather, but if a guy can go outside and, and kind of tell if it's going to rain tomorrow, um, we all have pretty good pattern-making and intuition skills in our in our brains, and people extrapolate based on the data they have. And, and if you have data uh, that tells you when... It is when the wind is blowing and the heat's rising from the ground, and you see the leaves overturned in the trees, which are uh, all things that I used to read in the farmer's almanac. Uh, <laughs> you and that means it's going to rain. Maybe eight times out of ten, it's going to rain. That's good enough for me. I do think we can't let this part of the conversation go without noting that sometimes this way of looking at the world does get targeted against other marginalized groups. Right. Right. And yeah. they, those kind that kind of conspiratorial thinking, I think, is harmful. So the the obvious examples here are where I, I guess, say, for example, some black Americans have absorbed some of the dominant anti-Semitic uh, conspiracy theories and, and, and falsehoods. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, another part of that way off in the corner of the barbershop. There's always some, you know, there's lots of people who talk about uh Essentially the same kind of stuff you'd hear from, I don't know, WASP grandparents Mm -hmm. about Jews. 
And it's jarring to hear um, in lots of ways. And actually, I think you you mentioned, you, you make a good point, which is the willingness to accept these grand conspiracies based on experience actually, I believe, makes people more susceptible to some of the bad ones, yeah. right? So some of the big anti-Semitic ones, we've had this long dialogue for years now about Farrakhan, and, and Farrakhan is a big trafficker of, of hugely anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. And those, I think, have actually penetrated to some extent uh, the baseline Black community discourse. Um, there's other stuff um, I'm trying to think of. There, there's some people who believe that feminism is a conspiracy uh, to, I don't know, um, <laughs> to, to, to make to lower black birth rates mm-hmm. and eliminate black folks. Those are real things people talk but about. But that's also something that actually happened, right, in terms of, like, white people did try to lower b- black birth rates. Like, that was... Yeah, so... <laughs> <laughs> like, well, I actually wanted to touch on this, which is that, you know, there is a... Conservatives pull this up all the time, that, like, Planned Parenthood's a conspiracy, right, to um, rob black people of their babies. That's what... But that is not true of Planned Parenthood, but were there forced sterilizations of women of color in American history? Yes. Oh, of course. Yes, yeah. there were. <laughs> so I I definitely, like, understand, like, why you, you know, like, again, once you kind of see the structural inequality, that becomes the lens with which you view all these different power relationships. And the ones where you get shafted, th- that makes sense. Yeah, and it, it is... Although I think a lot of the components of of conspiracies are based on our really rational, sensical, sensical pieces of putting patterns together, the brain is sometimes easily fooled and is susceptible mm-hmm. to confirmation bias. If something happens and you believed that it was, if you if you know you right. think that redheads are the devil. <gasps> And, well, <laughs> hey, hey, we, we had to— <laughs> No, I, it's good. I, I feel like I, I, I want to be a part of this. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, we had to throw some daggers around. But if you believe the redheads are the devil, and you already are susceptible to believing that, and you have, I don't know, some person with red hair is even remotely rude to you, that confirms the bias in your head. And it doesn't work actually the other way, where— you have a, a person with red hair who is nice to you and that erodes as quickly that underlying bias. For whatever reason, our brains are wired to for in, in the direction of confirmation, right. um, which uh, I think is, is the major contributor to building these conspiracies. I guess that kind of preemptively answers the question of whether or not this kind of conspiratorial thinking is something that needs to be addressed or can be we can do something about. Like, I hadn't even thought about asking about that because, again, to my mind, it's a it's a it's a perfectly logical way of looking at the world. And also it can't be undone until there's justice. Right. Like individual acts of like white people being good. Right. Or the government doing something good. Those things aren't going to undo centuries of actual conspiracy. Right. It it is difficult, uh, perhaps impossible to uh, get rid of all of the deeply held beliefs, conspiracy theories based on 
centuries of layers and layers of personal experience, of anecdote, of hearing about these big stories in the news, it's going to be difficult to get around that. But going back to my Farmer's Almanac example, which I really love, by the way. It's a, it's um, a, it's a wonderful example. I, I haven't thought about Farmer's Almanacs in many years. but I, I think more people should think about Farmer's <laughs> Almanac. So uh, here is my, my plug to everybody. You know, If right. you're out there and you don't have a Farmer's Almanac, get one and read it. It's interesting. Uh, but one of the big, I guess, uh, revolutions in agriculture was the creation of, uh, in the U.S. agriculture, was the creation of these United States-funded extension services that came out and instead of giving people farmer's almanacs, they gave them alternative. They gave them science. Mm -hmm. They gave them all of the ways they could uh, improve land, they could grow increase crop yields. We can have a good, robust argument about whether that was actually good for the environment or not, because it was not. (laughs) But it was good for those farmers' pockets. Mm -hmm. And once they got those lessons down, once they really got to using them and applying them in their lives and and realizing that they were better in lots of cases than the old wives' tales and and the folk wisdom, um, they stuck with it. And that's uh, it takes a while to do that, but you have to have a concerted effort and you have to have it Applied in a way that materially benefits the people who are going to be using it. So if you're if you're talking about getting, for example, the black community to let go or abandon some deeply held skepticism of the system that's built on conspiracy theories, say, for example, with voting, right? Still think uh, even though we've had really high turnout in the last couple of elections, there's a baseline mistrust of voting that's based on that conspiracy theory I I started with, Mm -hmm. which is uh, Jim Crow. The only way to get past that is to actually have a electoral system that reaches out to these folks and works. And they have to see it multiple successive times at the ballot that people aren't coming out to stop me from vote, uh, from voting, that voting is, is easy and productive. And I can see a change that I made in the world they pass it on to their kids, and you know maybe it's not in in one generation's time, but two, three generations, with the system working the way it should, I think you should be able to get rid of the conspiracy theories. It would be nice if the person who got the most votes won. I think that would probably be helpful. That's a good way to start, yeah. maybe. Um, you know, <laughs> just, we, we tell people it's a democracy, and just that's tossing yeah. that out there. So I want to come back to another uh, group of people who also think that um, elections are rigged, which is Trump voters. But first, we're going to have to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Are you struggling to sleep these days? I sometimes do myself, and we are not alone. One in three U.S. adults do not get enough sleep. And if you're not getting enough sleep, it can affect your cognitive functions during the day, things like learning, problem-solving, and decision-making. If you get a good night's sleep, it's like a magic remedy for the brain and the body. When we sleep well, we are more focused and relaxed, and it makes us happier. And that is why I am happy to partner with Calm, the number one app for sleep. Sleep deficiency does serious damage, not just to your brain, but to your body as well. The sleepless are more prone to accidents, weight gain, and depression. 
I know if you are someone that has trouble sleeping, you have experienced these things in your own life. I know that I have. It is an incredible gift to yourself to decide that you're going to get a good night's sleep. We used to kind of fetishize, I think, um, not sleeping much. The president certainly doesn't sleep very much. He claims to sleep four hours a day. And look at the decisions he makes. You should try Calm. With Calm, you'll discover a whole library of programs designed to help you get the sleep your brain and body need, like soundscapes and over 100 sleep stories narrated by soothing voices, like Jerome Flynn from Game of Thrones and Stephen Fry. So if you want to seize the day, sleep the night with the help of Calm. And right now, with friends like these listeners, can get 25% off a Calm premium subscription if you go to calm.com slash friends. That's C-A-L-M dot com slash friends. 40 million people have downloaded Calm. Find out why at calm.com slash friends. So let's sort of go back to the our opening sketch here, because again, like one of the things that's fascinating to me um, is that there is this Trump voter who echoes those same that same kind of thinking. And yes, there has been economic marginalization of a lot of Americans, but most people who voted for Trump were not marginalized in any way, right? Um, right. And I guess some of them were white women voted for him a lot. Uh, but for the most part, right, the, the discomfort and the being subject or object targets of conspiracy theories hasn't been white people's history. And yet, those are the people out there sort of being the loudest right now with QAnon, with the president himself talking about how the election was rigged. I don't expect you to have an answer about exactly why that's happening. (laughs) But it's interesting that you have both a group that's been historically actually conspired against, right? And then you have a group of people who've been doing the conspiring, and it's the conspirers who also believe in conspiracy theories. Yeah. Um, another instructive, you mentioned uh, QAnon and, and uh, some other conspiracies. Another instructive one to me is, is uh, the rise of uh, some of the, I think, anti-vaccinations, actually mm-hmm. a really interesting parallel to Trumpism and and. and, and relies on some of the same energy and and what's happening in all of those things i believe and what's maybe at the root the fundamental root of of the folk power of white supremacy is that people conspiracy theories tend to dominate when people have low information or when the information they have is inconvenient and lots of white supremacists and lots of anti-vaxxers offer a more convenient and in lots of ways less chaotic explanation of the universe to people. It, people don't want to hear, you know, in a world where we've kind of, I don't know, demonized uh, or marginalized uh, people who say have autism. Uh, people don't want to hear that autism may be uh, something that is a random chance, you know? They, they want to hear that there is something in the world that's causing it, and uh, it can, even if we don't know exactly how to defeat it, we know what caused it, and we know who to vilify for. And I think that's the same kind of energy that goes into the average Trump voter, right? Which is, there is a, a, a explanation of the universe where the capriciousness of the universe has taken your job. Uh, the fact that 
just standard economic forces are creating a more diverse America, that's going to be pretty good um, for, I don't know, progress. Uh, People don't want to hear that. They want to hear an explanation for why they feel uncomfortable, for why America is a little bit less white and Christian and familiar than it was five, ten years ago. Trump offers a really convenient and powerful narrative. He says it's those folks. It's those people who are coming to take your heritage, your history. Uh, They're coming across the border. They're taking what you have. And you can do what you need to do to stop it, or you can let it happen. That's a convenient narrative, and it's also less chaotic than the alternative, which is history, society ebbs and flows. People feel uncomfortable. Your place in the world may not be set, uh, and uh, your group may be losing power that that it has, but that power may have been ill-gotten in the first place. A lot of that makes sense, and the first thing that pops into my mind is that, wow, we white people are a bunch of fucking snowflakes Um, because it's centuries of oppression that's created a conspiratorial culture in the black community, and white people just had to be mildly uncomfortable to start thinking that, (laughs) you know, that votes were being stolen, that Black Panthers were showing up to intimidate people at the polls. Um, that uh, QAnon exists. I mean, we just, um, I mean, we just experienced the slightest bit of doubt and discomfort about our future, and we went to conspiracy theories. Yeah, I mean, and that's, uh, I think there's something to the snowflake thing, uh, but also, relatively speaking, it it is. uh, Asking for a racially egalitarian society and, and a class egalitarian society Those are going to involve taking real power from some people and perhaps uh, redistributing some wealth from some people. Where I think uh, things get a little bit messed up is lots of white folks, especially the Trump base, which is not necessarily poor white folks, but, you know, suburbanites. Uh, They really like having huge McMansions, and they like having all the power in the world. They like being able to determine who gets in and out of their school districts. And anything less than that feels like it's depression, if you don't know anything else, right? Right. So, yeah, and going back to the old, you know, Farmer's Almanac, (laughs) there's a way to get to those folks, and it's showing them an alternative that's still good, that is— involves maybe them taking responsibility, that does involve them taking responsibility uh, over sharing power, but sells a world where sharing power is not oblivion. I want to talk about a few things that you've written. And the first one I want to tackle, I think, dovetails really nicely into this discussion. You wrote about how white supremacy is the Achilles heel of American democracy. And to me, that fits in because our our conspiratorial thinking, and I'm saying our in terms of like white people's conspiratorial thinking, made us marks for uh, people who had nefarious aims in our democracy. Like our willingness to believe conspiracy theories was, you know, fed and fanned and 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 set afire um, by an by a concert by an actual conspiracy to undo American democracy. Yeah. Uh, white supremacist demagog- demagoguery requires marks. It requires plenty of marks, plenty of willing marks. And the way you do that is, is by creating an atmosphere 
where people uh, don't trust the facts. You know, the, the very first usage of uh, liberal media, I believe, was by George Wallace. Mm. Uh, he, he, he helped popularize the idea that liberal media was coming down and you could not trust anything they reported on or said, regardless of, you know, how well sourced it was. You just could not trust it because they were liberals, right? That's how he created a, a state full of marks. I just think it's it's worth drilling down on to say that, like, when we talk about the harm that comes from conspiracy theories, there's kind of direct harm, which is like the anti-vax movement, right? Like that it, people who believe vaccines cause autism are doing a very direct form of harm to our culture, our society, the literal health of babies. And also like QAnon and, and Pizzagate, let's say, is harmful because the fucking asshole walked into Comet Ping Pong, Ping Pong with a gun. But conspiratorial thinking among white people is also harmful because it allows us to be manipulated. You know, right. it, 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 if, if we go in, if we go into this frame of mind where we think that, that, you know, a caravan is coming across the border, for instance, or Black Panthers are, are guarding the polling stations, like we are just that much more easily um, tricked, I'm going to say, into, say, let's say, supporting policies that don't actually do the typical white person much good. Um, like financial policies. It's almost, it's like a version of what's the matter with Kansas, <laughs> except <laughs> with conspiracy theories, maybe, you know, because I do think like the, the vast, like the people who benefit from Trump policies, from conservative policies are like the 1%, right? Um, but the people who support Trump policies aren't necessarily benefiting from them, but they think that they're keeping, you know, the brown and black people out, yeah, let's look at the evidence uh, for a little bit. Um, look at uh, let's look at the major conspiracies that have been intertwined with American politics. Let's say before uh, this last election, when with the the caravan, right? Mm-hmm. The maybe most important electoral conspiracy theory in the last twenty years was birtherism. Right. Mm-hmm. That was the idea that uh, Barack Obama was some it wasn't just that he was foreign or, or you know, may have been a hidden uh, Muslim. It, it was this bigger ideology idea that he was a foreign agent. He was beholden to somebody that wasn't in the power structure, whether it be black folks that he was trying to get secret re- reparations for or the larger Muslim world or something like that. That was the conspiracy. Uh then before that, there were the the big conspiracies in the 90s and 80s about super predators, about uh, all these black deviants who were going to take over your towns and your cities. There was a major conspiracy theory about welfare queens and welfare fraud. Uh, you go back a little bit further than that, there were the conspiracies that, that killed the civil rights movement, which was... Uh, the promotion of the idea that the civil rights movement uh, was subversive was anchored by people who wanted to see democracy fail and uh, that people like King were, you know, they were caught up in, in lots of the second wave of the, the Red Scare. Now, you put all those together and there really isn't a Republican president, save maybe George W. Bush, who is not ushered in into office by a significant application of a conspiracy theory at the polls. I would actually say 
remember Ohio. <laughs> true, true, yes. <laughs> maybe the people, I, I sort of, my image of the people who listen to this podcast is kind of millennials, so maybe they don't remember the, the controversy of 2000 and, um, oh, fucking 2000. What are we thinking? Not just Ohio, fucking Florida. Hanging right. well, chads also, and think, whatnot. I mean, it, George W. Bush, conspiracy theories, he got into office via, it's uh, not a theory, a conspiracy. Let's not forget that conspiracy theories were part of the energy that uh, impeached uh, Clinton and yeah. actually created the conditions that gave us George W. Bush, too, right? Um, so, yeah, that's uh, conspiracy theories are part and parcel of just how white voters are approached in the first place. If you are a regular listener to the show, you know about Rothy's because they're a regular sponsor and I genuinely love them. And also friend of the show and future guest Shannon Watts from Moms Demand Action. She also loves them. I think there are legal issues with her saying they're the official shoe of their group. But she did tell me I could use her name. That is how much she loves Rothy's. I also love Rothy's. I have a couple pairs. I was actually going through uh, my closet on Monday, you know, switching over from a winter to summer, although here in Minnesota, I need to keep some sweaters out. Uh, and a friend of mine came over and she was like, ooh, what are those shoes? And she was pointing at my Rothy's, my red camo Rothy's. Rothy's has quickly grown to a most loved, gotta have it brand. It's no surprise they have over 1,000 nearly perfect reviews. Their shoes are made out of recycled water bottles. They're completely washable and insanely comfortable. They're the everyday flats for life on the go. They're stylish and versatile. They go with everything from yoga pants to dresses and skirts. They come in a wide range of colors and patterns. They're available in four different silhouettes, and they're constantly launching new styles, so you're guaranteed to find a pair or three that you love. They launch new colors and patterns every few weeks, and they sell out of those, so keep an eye on them. Since Rothy's are seamlessly crafted from recycled water bottles, they're ultra-comfortable as soon as you slip them on. There is zero break-in. So I would like you to try Rothy's, and you can check out all their amazing styles right now at rothys.com slash W-F-L-T. That's Rothy's, R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash W-F-L-T to get your new favorite flats. Comfort, style, sustainability, these are the shoes you've been waiting for. Head to rothys.com slash W-F-L-T today. Van, are you ready to play conspiracy theory or history? Yes. Okay. So I'm going to read you two scenarios, and one of them is true. There is truth to, to at least one of them. That's the way I'll put it. So the CIA has an audio weapon that can cause targets to soil their pants, or the CIA has a heart attack gun. So I'm supposed to say which one is true, yes. right? So I believe, given the science— that it's probably true that CIA has a gun that makes you have heart attacks. Yeah, they, they may be working on the other one, but they do have a heart attack gun. According to an interview with Mary Embry, a former CIA employee, she was asked to help develop an ice gun that would, would when administered, would mimic a heart attack in a person but remain undetectable. Huh. I thought it was just going to be like a super taser because I know those can cause people to have heart attacks. Oh, no, this is actually much more nefarious. She said the heart attack gun reportedly could pierce through clothing, leaving no signs of impact on the skin except for a small red dot. Well, so, that's not troublesome at all. Well, scary. Um, 
Okay, next question. We intervened in Guatemala's elections to control bananas, or we intervened in Brazil's elections to control papayas? Oh, I am a big fan of the history around our uh, imperialism around bananas. So it is <laughs> the, the true thing here is a banana. And people should know, like, that is why those who have been a little more enlightened about that history choose not to use the phrase banana republic, because that is where right. the phrase banana republic comes from. It comes from the CIA intervening in Guatemala's elections on behalf of the United Fruit Company, which always makes me laugh. Well, I shouldn't say makes me laugh, but I'm always reminded that such as it sounds like it can't be real. United Fruit Company. It is from 1984. Yeah. Yes. Um, United Fruit. Okay. Next question. The government infiltrated newspaper men in the media or the government infiltrated grade school cafeterias? Both of these, I believe, are true. But in the context <laughs> of this game, I will go with the uh, cafeteria. I'm interested to hear about the cafeterias, but the one we have decided is true is Operation Mockingbird, which was on a large-scale program by the CIA. CIA is behind a lot of this. That began in the early 1950s and attempted to manipulate news media. It funded student and cultural organizations and magazines as fronts and paid journalists and entertainers to push propaganda talking points. Yeah, I knew the, I actually knew the newspaper one was true, but I was just kind of thought the spicier yeah. one was going to be the yeah. the more surprising one. Um, yeah. yeah. yeah but I, I don't know. I'm sure they're in the cafeterias too, but... Um, There's had to be at least one agent... <laughs> <laughs> who's worked as a, a school cafeteria somewhere. Yeah. I mean, well, if they if they bought off students, surely, like, at yeah. least in college, there was... A, so let's... In a I, college somewhere, yeah. yeah. So I'm going to say both are true. So next question. Edith Wilson, Woodrow Wilson's wife, bought up all of Baltimore while no one was looking? Or Edith Wilson took over for Woodrow Wilson and effectively ran the country for a year? Uh, so the second one. Yeah. yeah. Edith took over executive duties after her husband suffered a debilitating stroke. Our first female president, Edith Wilson. And the public had no idea. And that's still, it's, I guess, obviously, you knew it. it. It is more out now. But the public didn't know. Uh, next. Well, now they do. Yeah, now they do. Next. Scientists attempted to build a bomb to turn enemy combatants gay. Or scientists attempted to build a radar to find homosexuals, a.k.a. gaydar. Oh, I think, I think it has to be the gay bomb. Yeah. Both are true. Both are true. <laughs> Both are true. Wow. The U.S. Air Force explored the possibility of using pheromones as a weapon. A proposal requested a six-year, $7.5 million grant to see if dousing enemy combatants with female pheromones would cause a biological reaction in troops. The proposal suggested that affected soldiers would find their comrades sexually irresistible and could potentially lead to homosexual behavior. That sounds like a good time. Yeah, it sounds like, sounds like a party to yeah. me. And in the 60s, the Canadian government hired a university professor to develop a machine that detected orientation in federal employees. The resulting machine measured pupil dilation, perspiration, and pulse in response to same-sex pornography. So both are true, although Canada, that sounds— much less fun, I guess, than, I mean, pornography is involved, but not, you know, pheromones. Uh, I think that this is one I, I guess that you would know. MIT once intentionally irradiated children. Quaker Oats once intentionally irradiated children. This is another one where I feel like it might be both, but um, it's, it's, it's both. I'll, I'll let you be, yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll yeah, let you yeah, be right. It's both. Okay, um, it's I, both. Okay. 
I only learned about this one recently, and I I found out about it in the same sort of format that we're talking about, like things you may not believe about American history. Quaker fucking oats. (laughs) (laughs) And it's not just, it's not, it sounds kind of funny, but it was actually students at the Ferdinand School for the Feeble-Minded that they did this. Um, uh, The young uh, boys there were fed oatmeal and milk laced with radioactive iron and calcium. In another experiment, scientists directly injected boys with radioactive calcium. At the time, scientists were eager to conduct experiments concerning human health, and the booming breakfast cereal industry meant there was big money to be made. As a result, brands like Quaker wanted science on their side. Yeah. We had a little bit of a time there with uh, radioactive stuff. That was a... You know, I needed to have a couple of chats with the boomers. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we had some things happen. Uh, and then lastly, I know you know this one. Um, although I'd be interested to hear your answer, actually, your full answer. The government blew up the levees in New Orleans in 2005. The government blew up the levees in New Orleans in 1927. Oh, so the government <laughs> blew up the levees just south of New Orleans on the Mississippi River. Right. In 1927. That is Um, correct. Yes. And uh, they did it to spare the city and the business district uh, from the great flood of 1927. Didn't need to do it at all, it it turns out, but it did flood lower places in the parish, flooded lots of poor black and white communities uh, towards coastal and the eastern suburban, not suburban back then, but the eastern communities outside of New Orleans. Flooded them entirely, put lots of people out of their houses, and actually, they didn't need to do it at all to save uh, New Orleans. And lots of people still had that memory in their minds in 1965 and in t- 2005 uh, when Betsy and then Katrina hit and the levee along the uh, Lower Ninth Ward burst. It's not paranoia if they're really after you. <laughs> Thank you so much that's for, for playing, Van. Yeah, that was fun. Did you know that millennials have three times as much student debt as their parents? I have a feeling if you're listening to this program, you did know that. And it's not right. You can get your student loans right by refinancing your loans with SoFi. It's a fast and easy process all online. It only takes two minutes to check your rate. Refinancing your student loans could save you thousands. SoFi is the leading student loan refinancer in the United States. They refinanced hundreds of thousands of student loans, and 98% of SoFi members would recommend SoFi to a friend. It's fast, it's easy, it's all online, and it could save you thousands of dollars. And when you refinance your student loans with SoFi, you also get access to SoFi's membership exclusive benefits to help you get ahead with your money, life, and career. Check your rate in two minutes on SoFi.com slash friends. That's S-O-F-I dot com slash friends. Lock in that fixed low rate today. So I want to turn to a kind of another way of another form of conspiratorial thinking that um, affects black people and white people and uh, their different reactions to it. You do a lot of reporting about environmental racism, which I think in general could be called a conspiracy theory as well, right? They're poisoning the water, <laughs> right? They're putting something in the water. Um, they are literally putting something in the water. Uh, and you've reported on New Orleans uh, specifically. And you told me this story like just over coffee a while ago about what happened in this in a, a specific neighborhood in New Orleans. Do you want to tell that story? I think it's really yeah. illuminating. 
So I reported a couple years back on uh, lead poisoning in New Orleans. Lead poisoning is lead poisoning is a big problem in the city still. It always has been. It's an old city with old pipes. And for whatever reason, they decided to build uh, Interstate 10 right through the middle of the city uh, back when we had lead, lead gasoline. So every single avenue of lead exposure that was possible to be exposed by was common in New Orleans until Hurricane Katrina, really. Uh, and what I reported on was there was this big case in the uh, 90s when people in the New Orleans public housing projects, the Housing Authority of New Orleans, there were these really high levels of lead exposure among African-American children. And, you know, it started out a couple people went out to go and, uh, some of the lawyers were kind of ambulance chaser lawyers who were going out to find folks who were, you know, a little lead poisoned. And what they uncovered was a massive amount of children, of black children, who through lead paint uh, and through some of the emissions in the air were just inundated. And there were people who, there were kids who uh, had lead poisoning levels, uh, were tested at 10, 20 times the level of kids in Flint. Um, and they, it, this was one of these moments where, yeah, the like the Black Panthers actually in New Orleans originally organized in the seventies and eighties. Some of them had the idea to start doing lead testing because they had the conspiracy theory, the idea that the city was actually purposefully poisoning these children. In the same projects where we found out that lead poisoning was rampant twenty years later. And the other the other twist on this is that, but what what did it take to do something about this van? It well, this was a you know it was one of the biggest class action lawsuits in the city, in the city's history, and it really took uh, it was hundreds of kids showing yeah. that they had lead poisoning levels, you know, just well above and beyond the minimum thresholds at the time, which were much higher than they are today. So these were kids who were going in the court, not, you know, they weren't lead exposed. They were kids who their teeth were falling out, right? They had brittle bones. They were clearly impacted, not just from lead, but from a cocktail of really toxic uh, poisons and, and other environmental exposures. And it took a parade of them going into court one by one and took 12 years of court cases. It took three, I think one judge died. There were six different judges before they got to a settlement. It was, a, by the time they got the settlement, most of the kids in that case were adults and had been, if they were lead poisoned, they had been lead poisoned. You know, there was no outcome that their $14,000 they got from the case was going to change. And lots of the kids who actually ended up, who were in the class, they couldn't qualify at the end of the, the day for the settlement because their records were down in the basement in City Hall somewhere and Katrina hit hmm. and it flooded and lost some of the records. And it, I feel like that connects up with a lot of other stuff we're talking about because the burden of proof that they had to give, right? Like it, right. they were treated as though it was a conspiracy theory, as though they needed to like bring out the big board and the, you know, and the strings and the multiple tests. And they had to prove this pattern that existed that seems so obvious. 
but was considered, I guess, kind of a crackpot idea. Whereas, I mean, I, I think of that story and then I think of like your, your sort of stereotypical suburban white mother who's worried about vaccines. Right. (laughs) (laughs) What I'll say here, and this is really uh, relevant to the current conversation we're having on Juneteenth about reparations Mm -hmm. also, is the burden of proof has killed just as many black folks as any other conspiracy theory in America. The fact that black folks have had to painstakingly prove not only the effects of all these different uh, discriminatory actions. So not only did they have have to prove that they were lead poisoned, they had to prove intent. They had to find documents that were showing that there was gross negligence in every single, in in reparations, we have to prove not only do black folks uh, suffer from a major wealth gap, we have to prove exactly which policies it derives from where the black and white wealth uh, where they de- where they deviated uh, we have to prove exactly we have to run simulations to find the counterfactual America in which none of these policies had been uh, enacted and, and what the relative black and white families would have looked like there are people who dedicate their entire professional lives their entire careers in science in advocacy, in journalism, to proving these things. We have a body of knowledge on this stuff that is maybe more robust than anything we had on, like, quantum physics until the (laughs) 1970s. You know, this is quantum physics. We have from Oh, it's it's a lot simpler than quantum physics, I think. Like, I I mean, quantum physics is like you don't know it whether until it's observed, right? I think racism happens whether or not you're observing it, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the amount of proof that people have had to bring yeah. forward just to get the minimum level of response, yeah. that has driven, you know, I, I think it killed Fannie Lou Hamer in Mississippi. She was trying to prove mm-hmm. that Mississippians were uh, were essentially the victims of a long conspiracy. She had mental health issues and uh, she, she, she died early. You know, this is, you look at all the old civil rights leaders, the ones who were not assassinated, uh, quite a few of them succumbed to what we would describe now is as deep depression. Yeah. So you have these people who are burdened with proving that they are uh, not just affected by these things and that there is an intent, but that they are worthy of attention. And when you were faced with having to climb that particular mountain, I think going back to the topic of the day, which is conspiracies, Lots of people choose just believing that the system's out to get them and not doing anything about it. Oh, we're going to end on that? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. You know, I mean, well, I actually, well, let's talk just a little bit more because I think that's an interesting point. Okay. Um, because a lot of, you know, black people don't choose to do nothing about it, right? Like, right. that's the miracle here. Or maybe not a miracle. I shouldn't, I don't want to make it sound like an outlier. Um existing is a form of resistance for marginalized people in a lot of ways, right? Like it is. participating in society, if you have been marginalized by it, is an act of resistance. Yeah. Um, black joy or joy, the, cho- the choice to have some type of jubilation, joy, jubilee in your life 
even when you look at every single thing around you and it's all falling down, that's an act of resistance. And that's common to the African-American experience. Um, yeah, I think that's... Uh, people do choose to believe in conspiracy theories because they are easier in a way. Uh, but I think most folks still have that seed of, of resistance of the idea that we can join together and do something greater and we can beat the conspiracies. The thing about conspiracies is that they are all created by people. And that's why I think they're actually, uh, they are coping mechanisms in a way because they give people the, the armor, the energy to say, okay, this was created by folks in a, Maybe we can get enough people, a critical mass of folks to beat it. I kind of like the idea that joy is a a counter to conspiracy theories in a way. And on that note, happy Juneteenth, man. Happy Juneteenth. Thank you. And that is it for the show. If you enjoyed Van's discussion of conspiracy theories and his discussion particularly of uh, the hurricane history in New Orleans, you should definitely listen to his limited run podcast, which is dropping in October, that will explore the human disaster of Hurricane Katrina. And he also just has a lovely voice. I think I would listen to Van doing just about anything. That is it for the show. Take care of yourselves.